Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Heavenly Father, you've given us these words, immortal words, words we sang of to begin this service. And we pray that through the years, these ancient words would still come to us and impart. That means give, present, make clear to us something that you want us to know. So, Heavenly Father, we yield ourselves to that. We've just gone on record there. We're going to wholeheartedly listen. And, and Father, I'm the first listener to these words today. So, bless us all as your word goes forth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's start right out this morning with today's red letter words. The scriptures that came right from the mouth of Jesus Christ that we're focusing on Today And here we are. They come from Luke chapter 19, verse 46. It's part of a statement, but it's the key statement. And here it is. It is written, Jesus said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus was referring to some words that were already ancient in his day. It is written, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That was a powerful accusation and a condemnation. Let me ask you, if you returned home from an extended vacation and discovered that your home had been taken over by a group of pot growers... And all your bedrooms had green plants in them. And you had water lines running all through your house and electric coming from your house and your neighbor's house. And here they were just harvesting this illegal crop. If you came home and discovered that in your house, what would you do? How would you feel? Jesus, in this passage, came to God's holy temple in Jerusalem and found that it was, particularly the court of the Gentiles, filled up and taken over by those who did not belong there. By those whose activities made worship impossible there. So what did Jesus do? Let's just blend together a couple of uh, the gospel accounts. You follow along as I read first uh, from John chapter 2. And let me just point out that Jesus cleansed the temple at least twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, just a few months into his ministry, and that's recorded here in John chapter 2. And then he cleansed the temple during that last week of his life, following the triumphal entry. And that's recorded in the other two passages. But here's John 2. Just starting out his ministry, it says this. In the temple courts, he found people, Jesus found people, selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others were sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. His disciples remembered it was written. In fact, it's written in Psalm 69, Nine, zeal for your house will consume me. Actually, completely take control of me. Zeal, passion for your house will just fill me up and drive me forward. It'll consume me. Let me say that zeal, that passion never left him. He delighted in his father's house. And he was appalled the entire three years that he ministered on this earth. He was appalled by anything that hindered its ministry. Now here we read in Mark chapter 11, the event that took place at the end of his life after the triumphal entry. 
It says he, he went to the temple, he looked around at what was going on there, and then he left because it was late in the day. Mark's gospel makes clear to us that it was the next day, Monday, that he went directly to the temple and cleansed it. There's nothing in the other gospels that definitely say he did that cleansing on Palm Sunday. The other gospels give the account of the Palm Sunday, end it with a period, and then the next sentence starts and says, then he went into the temple, or when he went into the temple. Mark tells us, It was the next day. So we'll take that. So here it is. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 and 16. He overturned. He went back on Monday. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Some people making shortcuts through the temple grounds, carrying all their junk pushing their wheelbarrows, perhaps, to get from here to there. He wouldn't let any of them do that. No more are you going to use the temple grounds as as your thoroughfare for business, for your own just going from here to there as though this is not a special place. He wouldn't let anybody do that. This is the only place where that's recorded. Then Luke chapter 19, verse 46, that we've already read, it is written, he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the Gospel of Mark includes the rest of that Old Testament quote that we had there in Luke chapter 19, 46. That Old Testament quote is found in Isaiah 56, 7, and it has an extra little phrase on it to what we read previously. It says, Isaiah wrote, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that... That's where all this commercial enterprise was being conducted. It was being conducted in what is called the Court of the Gentiles, a great big open arena, a plaza almost, that the public could come into. Jew, Gentile, it didn't matter. But specifically, Gentiles could come there, and Gentiles were not allowed into the the real holy places of the temple. They were outsiders. But the court of the Gentiles, they could come and and look at the beauty of the place. They could come there and try to draw near to the God of Israel somehow. And by golly, that would be the place where a true Jew could confront a Gentile and said, let me tell you about Jehovah. Let me tell you about the God whose spirit inhabits this place. It It was a place set aside for them to come. All the tourists... All the Americans could come over there and walk through the court of the Gentiles and the Jews who really knew God could talk to those pagan people and say, I know you're here to take pictures. I know you're here to just celebrate. But let me tell you about the one true God who created all things. The court of the Gentiles was set aside for that so that even people from other nations could come and hopefully pray and seek the heart and the mind and the forgiveness of the one true God. See, any Gentile who wanted to draw near to the God of Israel, who wanted to pray at the temple, if he came on those days, he would find himself in the midst of a carnival-like atmosphere, a marketplace filled with hucksters hawking their wares. Not very conducive for approaching the God who said, Be still and know that I'm God. How could a Gentile ever experience that in such a hubbub? The whole scene. The whole scene was not very conducive either to the Israelite who was coming to worship the God that he had been raised to love and honor nor was it conducive to anyone else coming there seeking God. So in a word, Jesus discovered a serious problem. He walks in there and sees all of this going on, and the problem is that God's house had become corrupted. When God gave Solomon the sort of the design for the temple, when David got all the materials together, you realize there were no materials to build cattle stalls? 
There were no materials to build sheep pens. There were no cages, materials to build cages for doves. There was none of that. God never instructed them what kind of wood and how to cover the wood that the money changers would sit out to, uh, to do their work in the temple. What Jesus walked in, into was a degraded temple, a corrupted temple, practices that were never intended. The real desires of God for his people, for all people, were being thwarted. The temple grounds had become a, literally a zoo and a madhouse, a farce and a disgrace. God's house had become corrupted. And you know, you can't have all of that going on outside the, the doors that open yourself into the holy places and not have those holy places affected. Now, for our purpose this morning, it's important that I point out that not only was God's house in Jesus' day corrupted, but Christ's church can be corrupted as well. And I believe, to a large extent, the church in America over the last 40 or 50 years especially has been corrupted. I believe the Spirit led me to these red-letter words today because in my own small way, I share the passion of Christ in this regard. There is nothing more precious to me than the Church of Jesus Christ. And of the entire worldwide Church of Jesus Christ, there is no part of it more precious to me than Sun Life Community Church. You, together. I anticipate a lot of head nodding. Just practice. Nod your head. Like you just agreed with something. You know, do that. Any of you who saw the home run derby, I'd like to have that guy in church. Did you see the guy who won the home run derby on, on this week? His head was on a bobblehead. Everybody was saying, man, he's got a song going on inside him that nobody else can hear. Well, just every now and then that helps a preacher. Just, amen, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. You know, and then you try to settle back down and maybe stay sitting up straight. But there'll be some of that this morning. Going to be some head bobbing. You're going to say, yes, yes. That's, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And there, there may be a few quiet and, and, and possibly not so quiet amens. Could be. I see myself this morning much more approaching this congregation with my arms open wide than with a whip in my hand. I find the vast majority of us to be far from corrupt. You are precious. So many of you are as near to Christ as you've ever been in your life. So many of you have, have learned to walk so faithfully with the Spirit of God that, that his work in you is obvious to everybody who knows you. And it's obvious to me, and I delight in it. That's the way I, I believe most of us in this room are, are pretty far from being corrupt. But as my old high school football coach used to always say, when he would just give us some readout on how our last game had gone. He would talk about slackers. He would talk about not giving your effort. He would talk about just quitting on the team. He would talk about not knowing what was going on. And then when it got done with just all those statements, he would say, now if the shoe fits, wear it. Well, it may be. It may be that we create a couple of shoe sizes here today that your, fit, your feet pretty nearly fit. So just be ready for that. But just know I'm going to try on the shoes myself first. Because we all want to be what Christ would have us be so that his church can be the most glorious place it can be. And so I'm intrigued this morning by what I've simply labeled today the question. The question. How did, how does such corruption happen? Well, in this very passage that we've been looking at, 
when we see what Jesus actually did, we can discover two ways. Two ways corruption happens are revealed in the very cleansing of the temple passages that we've read. Here's the first one. Corruption happens first by attempting to make something sacred out of something secular. To use the biblical term, money changing. And I just say, money changing still exists. Now, the scripture is not incredibly explicit here. Just uses the term money changer. So that communicates that there was some money, some kind of money that was unacceptable for temple purposes. And there was some money, some kind of money that was acceptable for temple purchases to buy an animal, one of those animals, then offer it to sacrifice. Some money was unacceptable you could say that's not holy enough. That's just secular, dirty, sinful. And then there's some money over here that that is somehow holy, acceptable, not sinful, and worthy of of doing a spiritual thing. And so if anybody's going to come to the temple, then it just makes sense. You've got to put the holy money in their hands. Now, I've read, some say though the Bible doesn't make this specific, I've read some say that the Jews created their own temple coinage. The temple shekel. Coinage just made by the the Jewish leadership. Only used in the temple, only used for temple purposes, and were of course was concer- of course considered holy and good and, and proper to to buy. For instance, in this case, sacrifices, they're going to be offered to the priest and sacrificed to God. So some would say that they actually created their own coinage. They declared it to be sacred. They declared it, therefore, to be useful for temple practices. So if you came to the temple and you wanted to buy a a lamb or even doves or whatever it might be for your sacrifice, you reach into your pocket and you bring out your dirty, filthy Roman money. Who knows where that's been? Who knows what purpose it's been for? Jesus later on said, whose picture's on it? Well, Caesar's. Can you imagine using money that has Caesar's picture on it to do godly work? Well, the high priest couldn't. And besides, here's an opportunity. You can tell people that. We can't accept that money here. That's Roman money. This is God's work. And so what they would do is a person would come with his unholy Roman money and he would exchange it for the sacred temple money and then that unholy stuff never entered into the temple vault. Never got any of that dirty money in here. We only have our own money, the sacred money, the money we've prayed over, the money we've made ourselves, the money that is holy in this holy service. And so they would exchange it. And I would imagine there was always a a markup. There was always somehow a, you know, you lost a little in the translation there. But even if you didn't... uh, overcharge people for it my question would be okay here I come with my unholy Roman money and I I give it to the money changer and he gives me good money sacred money temple money so I can do my temple business what happens to that the money changer is working for the temple people right what happens to that unholy Roman money do you suppose they just burn it I suppose they, they don't desecrate themselves with it. They probably don't even touch it on the table somehow. What do you think? Don't you think somehow the, the powers that be wound up <clears throat> with all of that unholy Roman money in their own pocket? While they're handing you something, it costs them about two cents to make and charge you $100 for it? This is a scam. 
It's a scam. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says anything about making sure you have holy money to do holy stuff with. But it was being done. It was being done. See, you can take the secular, the sinful, and somehow turn it into something sacred. And, and it has special purpose. You see, that's my point this morning. It's a sign of corruption to seek to take something that is secular and turn it by one means or another into something sacred. Over the past 30 years or 50 years, let me say, the church in the United States has been guilty of this. It's okay to nod your head now or just hold firm if you need to. The church has taken secular music and by tweaking a word here or there turned it into worship music. Churches have taken the high emotion of a rock concert which might feature the audience jumping and gyrating at the feet of some noted performer and brought it into their worship services. Almost with an anything you can do, we can do better kind of attitude. How many church leaders over the years have adopted dress styles to say nothing of body piercings and tattoos and even phony personal histories that seek to communicate the same message? We look just like you. We dress just like you. We are no threat to you in any way whatsoever. How many professing Christians, in the name of so-called Christian freedom, have begun to frequent the places and engage in the behaviors that used to be practiced only by the unbelievers in this world? Is not a glass of beer or wine that used to communicate a secular lifestyle magically transformed into something sacred when it's in the hand of one of Christ's own? Isn't that how it works? In the hand of a sinner, you know, it's, a, it's something that just drags you down into the depths, but in the hands of a righteous one. Why, it becomes something that celebrates Christian freedom and Christian joy and Christian happiness. And isn't that an amazing thing? To transform the one-time secular into something that's even viewed as sacred and good. Isn't the secular sinful practice of sleeping with someone you are not married to isn't that transformed into something beautiful and acceptable when two Christians who love each other do it? How many professing Christian men, and most likely women as well, have justified, that is, made sacred and thus acceptable in their eyes, the secular sinful practice of watching pornography? And they do it because they believe it actually helps them remain faithful to their spouse. It keeps them, they would say, from actually seeking out some illicit relationship outside of their marriage. The unbelievers do it because they are sinful. But we do it, these Christians say, because we are using it to stay sin-free. All these things. All these things are pure nonsense and foolish. Until they aren't. And whenever that day comes, these things that are absolutely contrary, obviously wrong, have been considered wrong for a long, long time, all of a sudden the switch is turned in these things that one time we viewed as absolutely sinful and secular have become part of our heritage. And they can be viewed as sacred and helpful. I'm afraid if Jesus came to America today, and if he visited many of the churches that bear his name, 
he would be looking for a whip. The attempt to make something sacred out of something secular is an action of corruption, and it calls forth Christ's condemnation. Now, here's a second way. Here's a second way that God's house in Jesus' day and Christ's church in our day was and can become corrupt. It can become corrupt by attempting to make service, that is, service for Christ, less burdensome. Try to make service for Christ less burdensome. Convenience is still highly valued. That was the whole point of turning the court of the Gentiles into a barnyard in the first place. You see, at Passover, this is when the the main time when these things would happen. These were also the times that Jesus cleansed the temple. It was always at Passover. For Passover, every family in the nation was supposed to come to Jerusalem, was to bring its own lamb as a sacrifice for their sins. And the more personal the sacrifice the more they would feel the pain of their sin and even feel the brokenness of God's heart over their sin. But it could be way too painful. Parents could think. Older siblings could think. It could be way too painful, especially for the younger children of the family. Way too painful to bring a little lamb that they had personally raised and maybe even given a name. And besides, there was no guarantee that the lamb would survive the trip if they came, especially from a a distance. And the lamb might develop a disease along the way and, and become unacceptable for sacrifice anyway. So, how much easier, how much less painful, how much less involved How much more convenient would it be to just buy the lamb when they got there? The priest in charge. The priest in charge could guarantee that the lamb was free from disease. And the family, oh, the family would be saved from the distress of killing one of its own little creatures. And they would not have to be so diligent on their journey. They could just enjoy the trip. It was a win-win for everybody. And the only price of all that convenience was outfitting the court of the Gentiles with sheep pens and denying the Gentiles the access that God wanted them to have. And of course, missing... Or there was always the possibility that the Jewish family in question would completely miss the whole point of the process. That dealing with sin is a painful circumstance. That ultimately dealing with the sin of the world would cause the death of the Son of God would bring grief to the Father's heart, the greatest grief that that any being could ever know. How could their grief over a, a little lamb ever compare to that? But if you remove their grief over the little lamb, how can they ever understand the other? How can this picture that? But if this is a little lamb you've seen born... If this is a little lamb you and your children have raised, if this is a little lamb that you've given a name, and then you offer him up because you are sinners and sin requires the shedding of blood. Do you think your children, do you think you would ever forget that? Would you not go home resolving to sin less this next year than you did this past year? Would you not wonder why in the beginning people didn't just obey God? Wouldn't the story be told and retold? And and wouldn't you feel that when somebody says, and that's how God pains, that's how God hurts, 
whenever he sees the death of one of these innocent ones. And someday, even the prophet Isaiah told us, someday there will be one, a human being, not a lamb, but a human being that will be so horribly mistreated, God will lay on him the sins for all of us, just like your father puts his hand on that lamb's head and confesses the sins of just our family. Someday there'll be one that carries the sin of everyone. Imagine how pure and perfect that one must have to be. And imagine what pain the father will go through when he puts, as it were, his hand on his own chosen one's head and confesses all the sins of all time, of all people. And he sees the death that takes place. The one who is his. The one who has a name. The one who has lived perfectly and yet willingly gives himself for you and for me. Wow. The chief priest just blew away all of that. Just blew away all of that in the name of convenience. Just come in. Maybe dad can come in by himself. Maybe the kids don't even have to see it. But dad will come in and, you know, buy one. Buy, no, don't, don't get two. Don't let the kids pet him. Just buy him. It's your sacrificial lamb. It's not a lamb lamb. It's not one that... We want you to get attached to, but, you know, we've come all this way, and there they look, there's a thousand of them. Ah, take anyone. Doesn't matter. And all this that God intended them to learn and to be reminded of, and all of this that even, even a Gentile could be standing in that empty court of the Gentiles trying to draw near and come to some understanding of the God of Israel and and you have a Jewish man with his family coming with their little lamb. And the Gentile says, "What, what are you doing? What are you doing? He might see tears in the children's eyes. He might see tears in the father's eyes. He might feel the distress of the whole family. And he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I say, this is the only way that our sins can be dealt with. This is the way that God in heaven has revealed there must be an innocent life given for the guilty. See, and the Gentile says, can I offer one? Can I offer one? Not in Jesus' day. Not with the stockyard there. There wouldn't be any such conversation ever taking place. See, the the whole thing had been corrupted. And his purpose is destroyed. And Jesus was just infuriated that the work of God could be so made blind, people blind to it, and actually just benefiting from it. Oh, I tell you, How do we do that today? How does the church of Jesus Christ try to make following Christ more convenient? I just put down three things, and I should just read them and be done with them, but here we are, three conveniences. One thing the church today says, just give whatever. Just give whatever. Right up there with the liberty announced by our Declaration of Independence, and it's important, importance has been the supposed discovery that tithing is not for today. I don't know what Christian, what teacher, what pastor, what professor ever really first discovered that great truth, but for a lot of Americans it's been a great discovery. Oh man, do you realize... How would I have to change my living if I had to tithe? Do you realize how big my tithe would be? You know how much I'm making? 10% of that's a big amount. I'm glad my church doesn't teach that. I'm glad my church teaches that God doesn't even desire that anymore. That's Old Testament stuff. That's gone away. And, you know, and I sit here. Of course, they pass the plate every time we sit down. 
But I always have something in my pocket. I can throw in a dollar, throw in five, feel pretty good. One time I threw in 20 and felt great. Just give whatever. There's a verse in the New Testament that those who say tithing died out with the Old Testament law. And there are some very, very well-known, highly esteemed American pastors and Bible teachers who will tell you exactly that. Tithing died out with the Old Testament law. And in contrast, there's a, there's a new, almost a mantra, a, a new motto for the believers today. It's what Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where he says, God loves a cheerful giver. Ah, well, just give what you can give cheerfully. Well, today it's not much. I don't know if I could give anything cheerfully today. I got lots of bills. I got lots of pressures. I got a little short in my check this week. I don't think I could give anything cheerfully. I'll wait till I can be cheerful. Well, when do you think you'll be cheerful in giving? I don't know. I always get cheerful when I receive. But just God loves a cheerful giver, so I don't, I don't want to do something that would displease God. If God loves a cheerful giver, it probably means he doesn't love an uncheerful giver. And so it's better to be not a giver than an uncheerful one. And so, uh, you know, we'll just go. And so the preacher's job becomes this. How to turn you all into cheerful givers. What can I make you feel cheerful about? Hey, we have a new project coming up here that your grandson or great-grandson or your son is going to be a key part of it and we're getting together some donations and you say, man, I could give to that. I could give to that cheerfully. It's my kid. Going to help him out. I read a book in seminary. It was assigned to us. It was just entitled 44 Ways to Increase the Giving of Your Church. In other words, 44 ways to get money out of people's pockets cheerfully. Everybody likes something. You just got to hit the thing that turns them on and they'll write a check. Some people love to build buildings. They might write a check for a million dollars for a building and they hardly ever throw anything in a plate that just goes past them. Well, for heaven's sakes, build something. And then let them know. You'll put their name on the wall. Make them like it. Do things they already like. Give whatever. There's no, no law here. There's no guideline here. You know, just God understands and he approves. Well, I'll tell you, never in my whole life, and no way do we here at Sun Life Community Church believe that. I believe and teach, and I know most of you have embraced that tithing, God's people were, were tithing long before the law ever came into place. We believe, like I like to say, tithing is part of the very fabric of the universe. I think Adam and Eve would have tithed the apples on the tree. It's just part of the way things are. God provides for us and we return in gratitude a portion to him. Tithing is first mentioned, as you know, in Genesis chapter 14. That's at least a thousand years before the law was given through Moses. The last book of the Old Testament affirms the practice that the first book of the Old Testament identified. Malachi says 3.10, bring the whole tithe. We believe that. We believe it's God's plan. Now, here's the thing the world can't believe, but if you want to nod your head, you can nod your head at this one. I'm going to nod mine. Here's the practice that the vast majority of American Christians actually believe to be impossible, to be a cheerful tither. Just be a cheerful tither. We have a room full of cheerful tithers. I have people who chase me down. If they, if they miss the first fruit offering, they'll chase me down and, and hand me. It's like, oh boy, I don't want to. I have one fellow who ties everything that comes in. It's kind of a, a cash thing. And he will call me in the middle of the week and he says, I got paid today and I got my tithe in my pocket. And if I don't get it in right now, I'll probably spend it on something. Could you meet me at the church? 
It's a good reason I live close to the church. It's like, you know, this is, this, is, this is a deal I do. This is what I like. I remember the young couple that came out many years ago, a young wife who came jumping up and down after a First Fruit Sunday. This building wasn't even here yet. And she said, today was the first day we tithed. I thought she was a football player just scored a touchdown. We tithe for the first time. See, cheerful tithing. Most pastors... Most church people, most church leaders would say, if you're going to hold out for that, you're going to go broke. Well, we've been 25, 26 years, and I think we're more cheerful in our tithing now than we were when we started. And our tithing, because we make a commitment to you, to ourselves, we live, the leaders of this church commit to you, we live within the limits of the tithe. So we will never come to you with a special deal that we think might get you excited that you might give a little more. If we can't afford it with the tithe of the people, God doesn't intend us to do it. But the tithe of this people has always provided all we need plus an abundance. And so that's what convenience... I'd like to say the most convenient thing in the world to do is to tithe. It's mathematically convenient. Tithe once a month. If you get paid once a month, just move the decimal point. It's convenient for sure, but I tell you, it is just delightful. Because God holds up his end of the bargain every time. He says, test me. Only time we're allowed to test God. He says, test me in this. Don't test me in other stuff, but test me in this. You bring the tithe and see if I don't just pour out a a blessing upon you. In one way or another, your life will go better as a tither than it would go otherwise. And I just say that after many, many years of seeing that in my own family that I grew up in and in the family that I'm in now. So, well, let's move on. Give whatever, though, the American church says. Whatever you can feel comfortable with, whatever you feel joyful about, you, you, just, you just give. There's no... And no requirement on it, and no biblical guidelines for it. Secondly, come whenever. Give whatever, come whenever. Never has the Lord's day been less the Lord's day than today. Worship used to happen on Sunday exclusively. The frontier churches in this country would spend the entire day on the church grounds. Morning worship potluck lunch, afternoon fellowship, and then evening vesper service. They'd come in from the ranches in their buckboards and and just settle down at church all day long, all Lord's Day long. Today, churches and people fit in their worship whenever they can. Many of them have even given up going to church altogether. They've discovered other ways to get their spiritual input The attitude of many churches seems to be whatever works for you and yours. We wouldn't want church to get in the way of your life. But the scripture still says, don't forsake assembling together. Just don't stop doing that. You need to be face to face. Those of you watching at home right now, I'd just say, if at all possible... You get here physically. Some of you can't, and that's why we live stream, and and we're delighted that by the Spirit of God we can feel a kind of connection. I can with you, you can with us. But if you can possibly be here, be here, because that's the dynamic of the the body of Christ. That's all part of, of it. Being there for and with one another. Well, here's the third thing and the final thing. Final convenience the American church provides. Live however. Give whatever. Come whenever and live however. However you want. We're not going to get messed up in your business and tell you right from wrong or anything like that. The examples of secular life being adopted as sacred options that I mentioned earlier, they come in under this category. It's like, we're not going to mess with your business. You live however you want to live. That's between you and God. 
Suffice it to say that many American Christians live a lifestyle that earlier generations of Americans would have found deplorable. The Council of the Apostle Paul has a sense of urgency within it. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this, Let us, even back in his day, he would say, we need to get our act together. Because impurity always sneaks in. No matter what generation we're in, we're always a little less pure than the one before us as far as things that we accept, things we acknowledge, things that we do. Paul says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates. That could be anything. If it comes between you and a full commitment to Jesus Christ, it's contaminating you. You need to purify yourself from that. I do, wherever the Spirit makes us aware of it. All the things the Bible says can create contamination. Make a list of them and resolve to avoid them or remove them. And now here, this is why it's so important. This is why Jesus picked up the whip in the first place. And this might be why we need to pick up some resolve for ourselves. I just call it the indictment. What did Jesus really find these people guilty of? More than just the behaviors, the sheep pens in the court of the Gentiles, why were they there? What was behind it? What was the problem with the leaders that allowed this to happen? Here's what Jesus said. Talking about God's house, talking to those who are responsible for this corruption. He says, you have made it, God's house, a den of robbers. Because underneath all of this is just a desire to benefit yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. You're getting rich off of this. You're getting rich off of this. You're robbing people. Basically, we could say you are serving yourselves rather than God. You're now making the rules of how things are going to go. These aren't things God said. These are things you said. You're serving yourself and you're teaching the people to serve you and your notions more than you're teaching them to serve God and his directives. Secondly, you are stealing from those that God would bless. They were stealing the opportunity from the Gentiles to just come to the house of God and and maybe feel the presence of God, see the glory of God, and perhaps be drawn into a relationship with God. They were stealing that from them. They were stealing, as I mentioned, the joy and the understanding of the Jewish family who was supposed to be coming to Passover with with a sacrifice. Not just buying an animal and giving him to the priest, but coming with a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice, something that pained them and hurt them and caused them to realize what pain God feels over the sinfulness of men. They were stealing that spiritual lesson from them. They were stealing so much. And then, of course, he says, and would include the Pharisees there and the chief priests, you yourselves are missing his blessing. Whoever it is that tries to change the rules, whoever it is that tries to come up with a more convenient solution, whoever it is that contributes toward the corruption, the sinfulness within even the church of Jesus Christ, they themselves are missing the blessing of God. And those who fall prey to their teachings miss the blessings of God. Those believers who say, oh, I do love Jesus. I have committed myself to Jesus. But somehow somebody is telling them that their lifestyle is okay. They're missing God's blessing. Because when we sin, we grieve the Spirit. When we grieve the Spirit, we shut off from the Spirit many of the things that he would bring into our lives. We can be surrounded by a den of robbers and not even know it. So the assessment for myself, for us, anyone listening in today, the assessment for those men that Jesus addressed in his day would just be this. How passionate am I? How much does this concern me? How 
concerned about it am I? How passionate am I about Christ's church? Its purpose, its people, its power, its purity. Jesus was highly zealous, filled with passion. It was a passion like none other on the face of this earth. And that leads our final thought. Passion, zeal for the church of Jesus Christ is passion shared with Jesus himself. You want to feel like you're, you're in touch and close and becoming like Christ himself? Get passionate about his church. Say, oh, I want the church of Jesus Christ to shine like a light on a hill. I want the church of Jesus Christ to be pure in heart. I want each one of us to be so committed to Christ that that we have no attraction to the things of this world at all. Oh, I want us as a a group of people, a family of faith together, to, to just be the church of Jesus Christ. And to take his teachings as gospel and apply them enthusiastically every day of my life. And so I say here, final thought, it is a passion like no other. Nobody has a passion like Jesus. And there's nothing that we can get passionate about like the church of Jesus Christ. Allow his spirit, allow the spirit to match your passion to his. Heavenly Father, I know the people Jesus talked to on that day who saw the actions that he took, who heard the sting of his rebuke, they didn't easily forget what he did or said. And I would imagine some of them were changed eternally because of it. Others of them got together and said, we need to kill that man. We need to get rid of that man. He's a danger at everything we're trying to do. And he's accusing us of things that we would never confess to. Father, we need to be passionate about the things of God. We want to be passionate about the church of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing, really, of a spiritual nature happening in the world today. Jesus said, I will build my church... And he sent the Holy Spirit to to drive the nails and to raise the structure. And the Spirit's doing it. Father, we want him to continue to beautify and perfect this little church, this part of the body of Christ. Father, I thank you all for such purity that I see in it. I rejoice in it. And Father, we want to just continue to become more and more impassioned by the glory and the goodness of Christ's church. Guide us, we pray. Bless us, strengthen us, encourage us, equip us to make any changes that might need to be made. For we ask this in Jesus' name. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.